0: I definitely went through a period of being incredibly into and flirting with the idea of properly studying the wild art form of magic. From a performer's perspective, magic gives you ultimate power, the ability to amaze, confuse, and mesmerize an audience. It's a performer's medium with endless ways to deepen practice and study, and hundreds of years of inherited guidance to draw from. And as a performer, to be able to suspend your audience's disbelief, perhaps bringing them to the brink of believing that maybe, just maybe, there's something to the supernatural or otherworldly, that's fun. Judaism is actually chock full of magic-adjacent practices. Some of you may have family, perhaps grandparents, that spit three times to ward off evil spirits, or you've heard the term kenahara, which literally translates to no evil eye. Certain Hasidic communities use fertility charms, and in the Torah itself, there's actually quite a bit of magic in the narrative. While we spoke many months ago with Pam Grossman, a practicing Jewish witch, about spells and rituals, we thought it would be fun to have a conversation with a practicing magician, one who has a personal journey from the bima to the boards. Enter Tanya Solomon. Tanya has a pretty incredible life story, having grown up with a cantor as a father until she decided to run away with the circus. She's spoken and written at length about her relationship to both Judaism and stage magic, and how the two are interconnected. Today, Rabbi Jess and I will speak with Tanya about her journey around the world as a performer, the parallel lives of magicians and rabbis what we might take from the inclusion of demons and angels and amulets and charms in the Torah, and why so many magicians throughout history are Jewish. You know, if I could perform any trick right now, I'd throw a smoke bomb, and as the atmosphere cleared, we'd have a rating and review from every one of our listeners. You can make my wish magically come true by hopping into iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And the piece de resistance would be to discover that our listeners went above and beyond by performing a slate of wallet, having become supporters of the study's Patreon. A few of you already have proven this trick to be possible. Generous listeners like Paul, Carleen, Rebecca, and Nell, to whom we are forever grateful. Without further ado, on to the show. As always, a pleasure to be in conversation with Rabbi Jess Minen. So good to be with you again, Jess.
1: So good to be back, Rabib.
0: And today I would like to welcome Tanya Solomon, magician and a regular on the New York variety circuit. Tanya has toured the world as a magician and stage performer. She's been a cast member of Coney Island Sideshows by the Seashore. Time Out New York has said Tanya's performance are magic for an intelligent adult audience. Tanya Solomon, thank you so, so much for being with us today.
2: Hi, Raviv. Hi, Jess. It's great to be here.
0: Tanya, I am like, I'm, I'm a fan of your work, and I am a fan of your story. And I'd love to learn a little bit more about you, the evolution of your relationship to Judaism and Jewish practice, and perhaps your call to magic and performance.
2: Well, uh, my relation to Judaism and my work as a magician, it's definitely interwoven. I came to magic, I came to performance very late in life. I didn't start till I was about 29, 30, but I was raised Orthodox. I was raised modern Orthodox and my father was a cantor. I should say my father, Oliver Sholem. He's no longer with us, but he was a cantor in Kansas City, Missouri for 40 years. And that's where I was raised. And people always say, oh, you were raised Orthodox in Kansas City. That must've been weird. But there was a sizable Jewish community in Kansas City related to the community in Denver that you must be familiar with, Jess. Um, There was a decent Orthodox community too. There was a Hebrew academy that I went to because I know people are gonna think Kansas City Orthodox Jew, it it happens. (laughs) It's a real thing. So I was raised modern Orthodox as a child. As I got older, I left the Hebrew Academy, went to a secular middle school, and went through a rebellious period of total atheism, just total disbelief in God, um, this sort of mechanistic, 19th century view of the universe. I mean, I wouldn't have described it that way as a 13 year old, but looking back on it, I'd describe it that way. Uh, Later on, like when I was in college, I was more spiritually engaged, so to speak, that sounds very woo woo, but I was more, let's say, open to mystery in the universe than classical atheism or teenage atheism allows. And I, I studied Judaism as a comparative religion subject in college. so. I have some knowledge about Judaism from a distance through that. I never came back to Judaism uh, as a practitioner. I consider myself culturally, ethnically, proudly Jewish, uh, but I've I've never gone back to it. After I left college, I ended up working in publishing for a while. And then I went to grad school in philosophy, and I think I was drawn to that because of My background in the Hebrew Academy as a little kid reading Torah, having to examine every sentence and ask questions about every sentence in the Parsha, that made philosophy really appealing to me as an adult. I was going to grad school for philosophy when I just made a sudden, unexpected turn. I became a huge fan of this little punk rock circus in Brooklyn, uh, the Bindlestiff Family Circus. They still exist, but they're a much more professional outfit now, but they used to be- Super DIY, Little Circus, Very they they used to be very adult. Now they're more family-oriented. Anyway, I would go to their show every week. I was just blown away by this vaudevillian experience, these weird acts. Uh, this, this whole format, I, I was addicted to it. And I wasn't a performer at all, but I got a chance to be their merch person. And it's a long story, but I ended up doing sideshow acts at the circus. I oh. got so drawn into it. And then I worked for the Coney Island sideshow. So all of a sudden I was a performer. And I think the reason I was able to make that transition when I was 30 was because my father was a He because he was a cantor. He himself, he was a very shy guy. He was a very quiet guy. But when he was on the bima, he was on stage. He gave an operatic performance. He had this magnificent baritone. He was very dramatic. He was just very theatrical. And it really struck me that someone who was just so quiet in everyday life, he liked to just be home tinkering with electronics. He wasn't very social, but when he was with his congregation, and it was a pretty large congregation, he he was just on fire with an audience. And he could feel the energy of an audience and communicate with them. And he never explicitly taught me that, but I grew up watching that. I grew up watching that exchange of energy with a congregation, with an audience, from a bima, which is essentially a stage. So I think that when I suddenly found myself on stage performing sideshow tricks, it seemed to come naturally. I never really get stage fright, because my dad used to put me up on the bima with his youth choir as well. So I wasn't afraid. I mean, we used to just see what we could get away with, like tickling each other on the bima. We were so not afraid of the congregation watching us. We were bored out of our minds. We were eight years old. So that made going into performance easier. There's something else I learned from my dad, and that was what he called raising the ruach. Uh, I don't know if your listeners are familiar with that term. In Hebrew, it literally means wind, but it also means spirit. Uh, for my dad, I think it was not so much mystical spirit as the spirit of the congregation, uh, the wind passing through everybody. He, it was his job to unify the congregation, to get them musically engaged, whether they had any musical talent as individuals or not. He wanted them singing loudly, feeling the energy. From him, I learned to be on stage and to really engage with an audience's energy. Uh, It's not traditional theater. There's no fourth wall. There's no fourth wall in stage magic performance, and there's no fourth wall in shul. So that was was a really Mm. strong lesson from my dad.
0: That really all resonates with me, and I maybe have talked about this on the show before, but that I feel like I can trace my attraction to performance and theater specifically to growing up with a grandfather who was a rabbi and seeing him tell stories and seeing him give divars on the bima and move people and bring people to laughter or tears through through story i did not and i really respect this actually run away with the circus and i wish that i had but i guess if you have committed yourself to lifelong uh, journey into performance then you're running away with the circus in one way or another.
1: We used to always say in rabbinical school that there are two types of people who are drawn to become rabbis, right? It, it's, it's theater kids and law school dropouts. And really everyone is one of those, those two things in rabbinical school, because you have to want to engage in some way with the minutia of the text, right? You have to want that. And to a certain extent, you have to want to be
2: on stage. You have to want to be the focus of people's attention. I think so. I, I I don't know about being the focus of it. Like, I don't particularly welcome being the focus of attention. And I think my dad was that way too. Like he never, in regular life, he never particularly cared to have anyone looking at him. He wasn't a show-off. I think you'll find a lot of people who are class clowns don't end up going into theater. Uh, theater people can be kind of shy.
0: Yeah, I'd agree with that. I'd agree with that because there's something about, uh, like, as an actor, you're behind the character, right? It's not actually you. As a magician, you are telling the story of the magic. And as a cantor, you're behind the the mask of song.
2: Absolutely. Uh,
0: so, Jess, it's really just the rabbis that uh, want all the attention.
1: (laughs) Yeah, what can I say?
0: You know what? Let's run with that. And Jess, why don't you uh, take the mic and-
1: Yeah, let me just take center stage here, Raviv, uh, and talk about (laughs) this week's Parsha. We have arrived at Parshat Shoftim, which is the story of of judges initially, the story of leadership. We are in Deuteronomy 16, verse 18, and we're going to go through chapter 21, verse 9. Um, the Parsha is called Shoftim because it's the first word of the Parsha, and it's talking about the appointment of the Shoftim, these judges and officials who are going to be stationed at our gates, at the gates of our cities. And you actually see this come up in later stories, that when people have questions or when people have cases that need to be decided, they go to the Shoftim, to the judges who are positioned at the gates of the city. We have a very famous line, you know, I'm going to tell you about the famous line, sedek tir Tirdof. This is the Direction of the Shof team. What should judges and officials, magistrates, be directed to do? And they are directed in the direction of tzedek or justice. Tzedek, tzedek, tir dof. We know when we have a word repeated like that that it's emphatic. Justice, justice, tir dof. You will pursue. This has become in modern Jewish circles a real rallying cry for activism and community organizing and social justice. And it's fascinating to me that almost in the same breath that we are getting the structure for how our leadership should officiate is this idea that we should always be attuned to or directed towards Zedek. And that chapter concludes with some messaging about not creating altars to other gods. So also in the same breath that we're talking about leadership and we're talking about human leadership, we want to be sure that we're not taking the place of or questioning God's ultimate leadership and sovereignty. And that gets picked up in chapter 17 with some conversation around the kinds of sacrifices we should make, these should be without defects. We have recaps about not worshiping other gods, but here's what happens if you do. And this is related to the idea of judgment. So what happens if you do do? the things you're not supposed to do. And in this case, worshiping other gods is a capital offense. And there's a description of being stoned to death. But in order to be convicted of a capital offense, there has to be two witnesses. And if you are convicted, it's the witnesses who have to cast the first stone. So let's all go back to the first season of Game of Thrones. That was a good season. And remember that that episode where Ned takes his sons out to kill the night watchman who has deserted his post. I know you are all with me. And he, the king, is the one who enacts the capital offense, which means that if you are going to put someone to death, if you are going to be a witness against someone in a a case that results in their death, you have to be so sure that you're willing to swing the axe. I'm on board. I'm not on board with capital punishment, let's be clear here. But if you're going to be in a society in which capital punishment is a part of the legal construct, then let's make it as difficult as possible to actually enact capital punishment. And if there is a case that's too difficult to decide, the chapter continues and you take it kind of up the chain from the magistrates to the chef team, the judges to the priests. And if it goes all the way up the chain, then you have to accept their verdict. And we have a little bit of foreshadowing of the monarchical system that's going to come up later, which is it's okay if you want a king. It's okay if you want that kind of monarchical leader, but it has to be a king that God chooses and that king has to be committed to Torah. So, yes, you can choose your own leadership. But when we get all the way up to the top, it has to be someone literally ordained by God. We continue in chapter 18. We have some notes about the Levites and the Kohanim who are literally going to be castes of people set aside for temple service. And because they are not going to participate in the agricultural society, their needs are going to be taken care of by the people through the sacrificial system. So when you come to the temple and you're making sacrifices, part of those sacrifices are set aside as donations to the Levites and the Kohanim, the priests, so that their needs, their basic needs for food are taken care of. We have some additional direction to not be like the cultures and people around us in the land that we are going to inhabit. And this is where we get a few famous verses that we will spend our time unpacking today. Chapter 18, verses 10 and 11, let no one be found among among you who is an augur. We'll talk about that in a minute. A soothsayer, a diviner, a sorcerer, one who casts spells or one who consults ghosts or spirits or inquires of the dead. And the idea here is that you... Israelites don't need those things because God will take care of your needs and appoint prophets to meet your needs. Chapter 19 expounds upon laws we've already talked about before, namely the cities of refuge. And what we have here in this chapter is a much longer conversation with examples about cases of manslaughter. What does it mean to actually engage in manslaughter? What are, what are some examples of that? And then we clarify because we've had some miscommunication in previous chapters, different versions of this text. One says six cities, one says three cities. So now we clarify that it's three cities when we first enter the land and then is enlarged to six cities of refuge. And lastly, we have a recapitulation of this idea that we need always two credible witnesses. We have a little bit of an aside of what to do with a false witness. Uh, It is not good, don't be a false witness. And we have that famous line, an eye for an eye, which is later unpacked in rabbinic text to mean the value of an eye. And that takes us to chapter 20 and 21, the conclusion of this Torah portion. Chapter 20 is instructions for battle. So who is exempt when we go into battle? And it turns out a lot of people are exempt. Do you have a new home, a new vineyard, a new wife? You're exempt. Are you afraid? You're exempt. That's a lot of people. And then we have some instructions that when taking over a city or laying siege to a city, terms of peace must, must be offered first. This applies to cities that are further afield, but here in the land, and this is a difficult one, you lay siege and leave no one alive. This is one of those verses that you can't turn away from. You have to lean into the discomfort and hopefully let that be productive discomfort. What does it mean that in the same breath We are instructed to lay siege and leave no one alive, but never destroy the trees. Never engage in total warfare, never completely destroy the land. And there are several verses here about the importance of leaving the environment and leaving the trees in particular intact. So there's something very painful and something very beautiful, almost in the same breath. And if that's not a definition of Torah, it's hard to think of a better one. And then last but not least, chapter 21, what to do if you come across an unknown corpse, you come across a dead body in the field and you don't know what happened to that person, whose responsibility is it? And so there's some discussion about how it's the responsibility of the closest town and that they have to make a sacrifice of an unblemished, unworked heifer so that they are absolved of any responsibility, i.e. we wanna be sure that if we come across someone who has died and we don't know what happened, that we are not standing idly by. It wasn't us that committed a crime. And so we actually land here and end the Parsha here with this idea of taking responsibility for death, even in the case where the death is unknown.
0: I really, really love Parsha team because there's so much to parse out here and to think about. And I feel like, you know, when we sit down and think about what these episodes could be, there's like a hundred different versions. Never destroy the the trees. Like, there's so much to unpack there. Tzedek, Tzedek, Tir I just love it. So thank you so much, Jess, for walking us through that. But I am curious, what is with the prohibition on things like augury and soothsaying? and divination, sorcery, and all that kind of fun stuff in between.
1: So let's, uh, you know, let's define our terms. And I think Tanya will help us unpack a little bit more about what magic means in a modern sense on the stage. In the context of the Torah, there are a few different types of magic or sorcery mentioned. So augury is divination through birds. And in fact, you if you know the word inauguration, Right. When a leader is inaugurated, you can hear the word augury in there because when leaders were inaugurated in ancient Rome, birds were released into the sky and that's where Is that them-
0: really what that's from?
1: Yeah. <laughs> Right? That
0: is wild.
1: So augury is the practice of divination by examining birds, um, usually their flight patterns. Soothsaying is a type of fore- foretelling, a type of fortune telling. Soothsaying is usually implying something about foretelling the future, like psychics, but The Hebrew here makes it very clear that the word is rooted in the Hebrew word for clouds, so soothsaying is somehow connected to divination through studying the clouds. Then we have divination in general which is kind of a fortune telling or magic specifically about supernatural means i.e signs and omens. Sorcery which is magic that can in English translation is often implies witchcraft or black magic and there's quite a lot of rabbinic texts that discusses the gender dynamics here. I don't think we're going to have time to get into this today, but the gender dynamics around women and magic and witchcraft. Um, We have the casting of spells, which is very straightforward. It's actually using divination to create spells that are some kind of incantation. Asking ghosts and spirits is a a version of necromancy, essentially being in contact with the dead, but in a future-minded way, Mm. like help us understand what's going to happen. And then knowing the dead, which is the roots yada and Darash, like literally knowing to seek from the dead, which is past-minded. So what's the deal? The deal, writ large, is all of the things that you could hope to gain from these practices, you should have faith in God or God's prophecy, God's, you know, human beings who have been sort of ordained for prophecy to speak to and through. And so you shouldn't have a need for sorcery. You shouldn't have a need for spells. You shouldn't have a need for divination because you should have faith. And we will unpack a little bit later how that actually plays out in Judaism, which to be perfectly honest, ends up having quite a bit of magic in it.
0: Tanya, do you recall your first encounter with this passage and how it landed then and, and what it means to you now?
2: I don't remember a first encounter with this passage in particular. It didn't really stand out to me because it wasn't something that was really emphasized to little kids growing up Orthodox in Kansas City, you know, that I I got in trouble if I wrote on my hands, for example. I had broken a taboo then, but there was no problem with augury or soothsaying. However, there was a general taboo on the supernatural in a certain sense. There certainly wasn't... Growing up Orthodox, there was definitely a certain taboo on the supernatural. The taboo was not on stage magic at all. My parents would watch stage magic on TV. I didn't particularly care for stage magic as a kid, mostly because what I saw on TV were cheesy magicians slicing up women, that didn't look like much fun or anything marvelous to me. Uh, I came to see magic very differently much later. There was a taboo on the supernatural that was considered pagan or other. I don't think they would have used the word pagan, but for example, no D&D. I was an 80s child, no Dungeons and Dragons, no Stephen King, uh, no Lord of the Rings, and what really broke my heart was no Halloween. Uh, mm. I loved monsters as a kid. I wanted to go trick-or-treating. It was not allowed. So while I don't remember encountering this passage, I do remember a taboo on that aspect of the supernatural in entertainment.
0: Jess, with all of these prohibitions, don't we actually have a lot of magic in Judaism?
1: Yeah. We do. First of all, oh my gosh, no Halloween. I My birthday's on Halloween, and so it's really oh. hard to imagine. I grew up relatively secular with a pretty light Reform touch, so it's hard to imagine. But I, when I was little and b- before I could distinguish between the holiday of Halloween and my birthday, I <laughs> thought that it was all for me. I thought that everybody was getting dressed up to celebrate me. Because oh, that's why? really nice. But there was some magic there in particularly in costume and in choreography that I think you see a lot in Judaism, right? Mm. We ha- there is some kind of magic in being wrapped in a, in a tallit and what that feels like. It changes the way you feel. And you see this in other aspects of, of Judaism as well, I mean, you can root this in the Torah. there are plenty of signs and importance of prophecy in the Torah, um, what what Moses is able to accomplish through God at Pharaoh's court.
0: I feel like like the biggest stories of Judaism are splitting of a sea and a burning bush. Like the the famous ones all feel very magical. Miracles, yeah.
1: That is the manifestation of God. That it's not magic because it's the manifestation of God. Uh. But then you see kind of like, it is magic. It's magical to imagine, at least for me, a power greater than myself that manifests in that way in my life. And then you also see things like, to fill in, for example, which are sometimes called phylacteries in, in modern English, which are literally derived from the idea of bind them as a sign upon your hand, let them be a symbol before your eyes, but also that they are a kind of amulet. And you see this in ancient times, people wore their tefillin all day. You didn't just wear your tefillin in the morning. You would wear your tefillin throughout the day. It was a kind of amulet or almost like a protective charm or magic. Mm. And then later you see in like the middle ages and beyond things like arising, these superstitions arising that, that result in ideas like golems and dibbuks and spiritual possession. And this is all kind of counterbalanced by a very famous line from the Gemara, Ein Mazal be Yisrael, that there's no Mazal or um, essentially not luck, but horoscopes, right? That we don't believe in that kind of divination from above. So you wouldn't have had Jews who are like, well, I'm a Scorpio, so I am a Scorpio obviously. So (laughs) let me tell you what that says about me. You wouldn't have that, but you do have all kinds of associations that are very similar with, for example, the Hebrew months of the year and when you're born and what that means. So yeah, we actually have quite a bit of magic in Judaism.
0: It is absolutely no secret that we here at The Study are huge fans of Shabbat. It is why we make this show and bring it to you listeners all over the world. If you are interested in diving into more Shabbat and filling out your Shabbat rituals, head over to OneTable.org to check out all of the amazing programming, text, study, videos, and more to help you and your Shabbat practices every week.
2: To uh, pick up on something that Jess mentioned, the story in, in Shmot in Exodus, about a magic show. There is an actual stage magic show in the Torah. I mean, this is the beginning of the 10 plagues. It's a, it's a magic off. It's a challenge. What Jess said about the source of the supernatural, I think, is really key. I went back and looked at the instances of magic that I could find in the Torah, and There's plenty of supernatural, there's so much magic, but it has to come from God. There is no magic that comes from human beings, that comes from non-Jews who are not using the power of God. There's one exception that I could find, and that's the Witch of Endor.
0: For you, is there any connection between knowing that there are stories that contain magic within Torah and your own you know practice of performing magic does Does there like a cross-section for you at all or do they feel really separate
2: they feel very separate i don't think there's any proscription on stage magic at all i think it's really soothsayers and augury i had no idea that augury involved birds thank you jess I deal with a lot of orthodox clients including clients who are much more orthodox than I was raised uh Hasidic clients. They hire magicians I think more than any other group in New York City. They love magic shows. Wow. Uh there's there's no problem for them with watching watching marvels on stage. There's another question about whether they practice a different kind of magic in real life. I have heard of Hasidim using fertility charms and other amulets. Uh, I suppose because the power comes, I, I'm not Hasidic, I can't speak for the Hasidim, but I'm guessing that because the power comes from God, comes from Hashem, it's okay. I can definitely back that
1: up. I married into a Hasidic family and we had um, a magician at one of our Sheva Brachot dinners after our wedding. You have the. You, you can celebrate with seven nights of raucous partying, which we did. And at one of those parties, there were magicians hired and it was fantastic and everyone loved it. There's also a lot of superstition in the family I married into, whether it's taking the wine from Havdalah and dipping your fingers in it and touching your temples and your wrists and carrying a little bit of the sort of literal magic of Shabbat into the week with you and that blessing, that bracha into the week with you. And I I agree with Tanya that the line in the sand seems to be that magic is something that allows us to suspend our disbelief. We all know stage magic is designed to to be um, something that helps us suspend our disbelief, but you're not actually supposed to believe that the magic is quote unquote real, as opposed to things like divination and psychic readings and soothsaying or, or things in that category, which isn't a suspension of disbelief. You're supposed to believe it, right? Like that is supposed to be real. And I think that challenges the sovereignty of, of, Hashkacha pratit, right? The that that God is ultimately in charge of what's going to happen, and that we as human beings have free will, but shouldn't try to interrupt that pathway or get in the way of that.
0: Tanya, I've I've seen you write about. Um, isn't there a quote about how magicians are the most honest liars?
2: Yes, it was actually um, from a Jewish magician, the late Ricky J. Magicians are the most honest liars because the whole premise of magic, of stage magic, is we are here to deceive you. I'm here to deceive you. Let's not beat around the bush. I've studied a lot of magic and that has made me very skeptical. I don't... I'm not 100% skeptical about the supernatural. My mind is open to all kinds of things, but I know for a fact there are so many incredibly devious ways (laughs) <laughs> that you can fool someone. You can really make someone believe that they are speaking to the dead, that they're having a supernatural experience, that objects are animating themselves around the room. And so I'm very cautious about what I believe. I, th- I think there is a taboo against the supernatural in Judaism that doesn't come from religious Judaism. I think there's a real line drawn against the supernatural in modern Judaism as of the 18th century, Jess mentioned the the Middle Ages, the flourishing of Jewish magic, the belief in demons and angels and amulets and charms, and all of this wonderful Jewish magic. There was a blowback against Jewish magic, uh, the blood libel, which has not left us entirely. There are still people, I'll just say it, QAnon, who believe in the blood libel, who believe that Jews practiced dark magic and that they used the blood of Christian infants. This was a very widespread belief in the European Middle Ages and Jews suffered from it. And there were reformers who wanted to set off the the Jewish community from these rumors and who would also like, in particular, there was a guy named Moses Mendelssohn in the 18th century who was, I think he was a contemporary of Kant. He was an enlightenment philosopher, and he developed this idea, which was something that someone like my dad subscribed to. Even though my dad was Orthodox and practiced Halakha, he believed, he, he believed in science. He believed that the Torah was revelation of what science would later teach us. That, for example, when you have a bris on the eighth day, that when that law was given, the Jews didn't know that on the eighth day after birth, the infant's uh, nervous system is dampened. But they w- doctors would later discover that. So Moses Mendelssohn in the 18th century really pushed this idea that Judaism was universal rationalism and that it wasn't coercion or dogma, that it was free choice. He really spread these ideas in what later became Germany, which was also a place where the blood libel was going around, and... Uh, the, this became something called the Haskalah, the, the Jewish Enlightenment, uh, which followed along with other European Enlightenment principles. And that's, I think, where the line was really drawn against the supernatural. These people, for very immediate reasons, because they were being persecuted because of the blood libel, they they were trying to distance the Jews from magic and making Judaism seem like a rational, scientific, modern community and practice, and I, I found out, I was reading about this online, and I discovered that the Enlightenment Jews, they were called maskilim, uh, one of their most frequent targets was actually the Hasidim. They would satirize the Hasidim and all their wonder rabbis, and uh, the Baal Shem Tov, and other uh, miracle tzaddikim. The Baal Shem Tov was a practitioner of folk medicine and he did all kinds of magic and this was a a point of satire for these enlightenment Jews so from then on uh i think the jewish mainstream really tries to separate Judaism from magic but these folk traditions persist i mean my mom uh whose parents came from the pale uh came from what's now belarus she still she was born in the united states but she still had some of these folk practices, like she'd say kenahora against the evil eye. It's something like may the evil, if someone wishes you well, or you're wishing someone well, you say kenahora, may the evil eye not be on you. And she would also pretend to spit and say poo 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 three times so that the evil eye wouldn't happen. This was someone who grew up in 20th century America, but she still carried these folk superstitions. So the Jewish enlightenment definitely did not erase all of it.
1: Every time I get a compliment when I'm when I'm in my Hasidic circles with my in-laws, Kenine Hara, 9 Hara, because you don't and you see this in other types of sort of Jewish traditional phraseology. Like if you if you find out that someone's expecting a baby, you don't say Mazaltov, you don't say Mazaltov, you don't say, you know, congratulations, you say Atova, like in good time. So there's there's definitely like a strong current of of the superstitious that runs through Judaism to this day,
0: Tanya, you mentioned that there are there's a whole slew of Jewish magicians throughout history, and some of the greats: Houdini, David Copperfield. Uh, the list of prolific Jewish magicians is a long one. Why do you think that is?
2: Yeah, it certainly is a long list of of magicians. Uh, even David Blaine is half Jewish. Uh, if if you are sort of a magic nerd and know anything about the history of magic, there were whole dynasties of American Jewish magicians, the Hermans, the the Bambergs. I think there's a couple reasons for that. Historically, there's a reason. Uh, th- this has been pointed out by Max Maven, who's a, a famous Jewish mentalist, which means a stage magic mind reader. Yes, his name is Max Maven. I suppose Maven sounds creepy. If you're not Jewish, it just means expert in Yiddish. But He's a he's a very campy magician with pointy eyebrows. Anyway, there's 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 a theory that because Jews were used to being very mobile, because they were used to having to get up and leave somewhere really quickly due to persecution, that they went into fields of traveling entertainment very easily. It was very natural for them. Uh I think That another reason that there are many Jewish magicians, I think this is a major reason, is because Jews are brought up in a culture of study. And stage magic involves a ridiculous amount of study. There are layers and layers of secrets. You have to know who to talk to, to know which book to go to, to find another source on top of that. And it's just all of this arcane information, some of which is coded. And... Because I was brought up studying Torah and reading all the, the Rashi comments in fine print and analyzing everything till it was exhausted, I think I was suited to study magic. And I think that that works for a lot of other Jewish magicians.
1: I was thinking about this too, like with someone like Ricky Jay, who I actually didn't know about until I watched Deadwood, the series, and he plays the card dealer in in Size. Saloon that competes against Al Saloon. Come on, guys. Deadwood. Okay. Anyway. So I'm Ricky learning J that you is... watch
0: a lot more television than I do.
1: Okay. Listen, I only watch good television, Raviv. Like, yeah,
0: that's, I, I'm not, I'm not judging. Just, <laughs> uh...
1: So I'm like, who is this guy? Because his, his sleight of hand is, I've never seen anything like it. And this is a type of magic, sleight of hand. It's a, we haven't talked much about it, but it's a type of magic and it's, I think probably my favorite kind of magic because it allows you or encourages you to get up close and try, try to understand. And I think there's a sleight of hand in Torah study that that Tanya's alluding to here, which is like get up close and try to try to see the mystery, try to see the moment that a word the you know can become the name of God can become hamakom, God is not a word, God is a place, can become transcendent and get up close to the cards and try to understand the mystery. And then there's this part of you that's like, I wanna understand the mystery, but I also want it to stay mysterious. I want the magic to remain. I don't wanna go behind the scenes with Tanya and know how she does every trick. I wanna suspend my disbelief. And I feel like that about Torah study as well, that there's a part of me that wants an, an element of this majesty and mystery to remain untouchable, ineffable.
0: Wow, I love that. And I love the idea, Tanya, of like to practice magic, to study it, you have to get deep in the weeds. And that's kind of exactly what we're doing here. And like you say, Rashi and Mishnah, and like you could keep going and going and going. And to get to the good stuff, you have to go through the practice of going through the weeds, right? It's it's not meant to be easy.
2: Absolutely. There's a lot of similarities with how between how one becomes a magician and how one studies Torah.
0: As we close out, I'm curious, since I have you both here, what might a talented rabbi have in common with a talented magician, which sounds like a joke, and we've kind of touched on some pieces of it. But for you, Rabbi Jess, and for you, Tanya, how do you see yourselves reflected in the other?
1: I mean, I think ritual. Ritual is, is the ultimate magic trick. Because you're... You're creating meaning using these components of, of purpose and drama and choreography and props and script. And you have to create a world for your audience, right, where those things become real and become alive. So if you take a ritual like lighting Shabbat candles, it seems very straightforward but actually, <clears throat> what's happening is is magical. The purpose is very straightforward. The purpose is that you have to have light ultimately to have Oneg Shabbat, to have Shabbat joy. Can't see each other in the dark, and we didn't used to have electricity. You need to light lights before before Shabbat comes in. But the drama behind that, the, the idea that the lights can symbolize something like keeping and remembering Shabbat, that they can symbolize joy and our love of each other and family, that they can symbolize the light that we want to carry into Shabbat, all of these things. And then you have props and you have symbols and you have the candles and you have more than one candle per person. And then you have choreography, like you're going to cover your eyes with your hands and somehow magic is going to happen. And when you open your eyes after saying this script, this bracha, this blessing, it's going to be Shabbat. That is ritual and that is magical. And it's exciting to me, obviously. I'll tone it down. But like, that to me is, is, are these moments when I feel most kind of alive and on stage as a, as a magician who uses these tools of Judaism to help us all suspend our disbelief for just a minute and connect to our past and maybe even say something internal about
2: our future or what we want our future to be. That is so interesting, Jess. I would not have even thought about that point of ritual. But of course, even in fake magic, AKA stage magic, you have to put the audience through a ritual procedure. When magicians wiggle their fingers or blow on something, or there has to be the appearance of a ritual to at least give the audience the sense that something magical is taking place, even though they know, as well as the magician knows that it isn't real. Uh, So that's a really interesting point. Uh, in thinking about this question, uh, what does a rabbi have in common with a stage magician? There, there are a couple obvious answers: the the ability to perform, the willingness to study obscure texts. But I think there's something else that comes to my mind, and that is the ability to tell a story that takes the audience, the congregation, somewhere. With a magician, that doesn't have to be a literal narrative. There are routines like that where the magician tells a story and perhaps acts it out. But it it does. it's usually not a, a literal story like that. It's the arc of a routine that takes the audience on a journey with a beginning and an end and twists and turns and surprises. A good magic routine goes a lot deeper than the simple narrative of, bam, something crazy happened. It takes you on those twists and turns. And I think that a good sermon from a rabbi takes you on those twists and turns and takes you beyond the literal surface of a Parsha or whatever is being discussed. So I think that that would be a real point in common.
0: Tanya, Solomon, thank you so, so much for joining us today, talking some magic, some magic history, some Torah. Uh, I really, really appreciate your time here.
2: Thank you, Raviv. This was so much fun. And thank you, Rabbi Jess.
0: Thank you, Rabbi Jess. Thanks for joining, walking us through a whole bunch of Torah shof team. You killed it.
1: This was fascinating and fun. Thank you, Tanya. Thank you, Raviv. And thanks for listening, as always. Shabbat shalom, everybody. Shabbat shalom.
0: Shabbat shalom. I put a spell on you. Because The study is produced by Evan Scott Nicholas and me, Raviv Ullman. My co-host today was Rabbi but Jessica Minin. Guest is Tanya Solomon. Outwork by Julia Pot. We will see you next week.